Much of what we hear about the plight of American women is false. And some phony claims have been repeated so often, they're almost beyond the reach of critical analysis. Coming up next on The Factual Feminist, five feminist myths that will not die. Myth number one, women are half the world's population, working two-thirds of the world's working hours, receiving 10% of the world's income, and owning less than 1% of the world's property. Well, this faux fact is routinely quoted by advocacy groups, by the World Bank, Oxfam, the United Nations, but it's a fabrication. More than 15 years ago, two Sussex University experts on gender and development explained that the slogan was simply made up by somebody at the UN back in the 80s. And it just seems sort of right to, the, to that person. <laughs> There's no evidence that it was ever accurate, and it's certainly not accurate today. In Africa, for example, Yale economist Cheryl Doss found that female land ownership ranged from 11% in Senegal to 54% in Rwanda and Burundi. Next myth. Between 100,000 and 300,000 girls are sold into slavery each year in the United States. Now, this sensational claim is a favorite of celebrities, journalists, advocates, politicians, both conservative and liberal, by the way. The source for the figure is a 2001 report on child sexual exploitation. But that 100 to 300,000 figure referred to children at risk for exploitation, not actual victims. And as one of the authors made clear in an email exchange that he had with the Village Voice, the actual number of children abducted and pressed into sexual slavery is, quote, a few hundred. That's still a hundred too many, but they're not going to be helped by a thousand-fold inflation of the number. Next myth. In the United States, 22 to 35 percent of women who visit emergency rooms do so because of domestic violence. Now, this claim has appeared in countless fact sheets, books, articles. It's in the Penguin Atlas on Women. They use this emergency room figure to justify placing the United States on par with Uganda and Haiti for intimate violence. Well, what is the source? It seems that several feminist scholars misunderstood a 1997 study by the Justice Department. The correct figure is not 22 to 35 percent, but get ready, less than one-half of one percent. Next myth. One in five college women will be sexually assaulted. Now, this incendiary figure is everywhere in the media today. The one in five figure is based on a survey called the Campus Sexual Assault Study. But two prominent criminologists have noted fatal flaws. It had a very low response rate, a non-representative sample of respondents, and an overly broad definition of what counts as assault. I mean, it included such things as attempted forced kissing or intimate encounters while intoxicated. Now, defenders of the one in five figure will reply that the finding has been replicated by other studies. <laughs> but these studies suffer from the same sorts of flaws. Now, the best study that we have on sexual assault on campus suggests the figures are closer to one in 40, not one in four. One in 40 is still bad, but apparently not bad enough for the activists. And now for the mother of all feminist factoids. Women earn 77 cents for every dollar a man earns for doing the same work. Now, no matter how many times this wage gap claim is decisively refuted by economists, including feminist economists, it always comes back. The bottom line, 
The 23-cent gender pay gap is simply the difference between the average earnings of all men and women working full-time. It doesn't take into account differences in occupation, positions, education, job tenure, hours worked per week. When such relevant factors are considered, the wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. Now, wage gap activists will say, no, women with identical backgrounds and jobs as men, they still earn less. But they always fail to take into account critical variables. I mean, why play this game? Now, all of these reckless claims are nearly impossible to correct. Because armies of advocates, journalists, political leaders, they depend on killer stats to promote their cause. And I guess there's also an admirable human tendency to be protective of women. And stories of female exploitation are readily believed. But killer stats undermine good causes, and they send scarce resources in the wrong direction. My advice to women advocates, take back the truth. And if any of you have questions about anything I've said or would like to see other dubious feminist facts investigated, please leave comments below. And if you appreciate what I'm doing here, please subscribe to the series and follow me on Twitter. And remember, check your facts, not your privilege. When news of the Santa Barbara killings broke, gender activists seized on it as a teachable moment about the war on women. There were more than a million tweets at the hashtag YesAllWomen. Well, what did we learn? Coming up next on The Factual Feminist. Now, many of the activists at the hashtag YesAllWomen insisted that no one was out to demonize men. And I'm sure that was true of many of the contributors. But consider this infographic that went viral once it was posted on Upworthy's Tumblr. You say not all men are monsters? Well, imagine a bowl of M&Ms. 10% of them are poisoned. Go ahead, eat a handful. After all, not all M&Ms are poison. Well, where to begin? First of all, what does that 10% figure represent? I mean, are they saying 10% of men are murderers or rapists? And, and what's the evidence for that? Are they talking about all men, American men, college men? Or as one blogger asked, men who play ukuleles or, or Martian men? And by the way, I wouldn't eat a single M&M if I knew that 10% or 1% or 0.01% of them were poisoned. But what's most wrong about this graphic is that it deploys the, the classic logic of bigots. I mean, think of saying, well, X percent of African Americans or Muslims or Jews or Hispanics, X percent of them are dangerous, and we just don't know which ones. So therefore, let's treat them all as suspects. Well, congratulations, Upworthy. You've promoted the same logical fallacy behind Jim Crow laws or racial profiling. Basically, the message to women is to treat all men as if they're poison. Now, I think men will be forgiven for finding the whole thing quite insulting. What's most upsetting to me as the factual feminist is that the shooting was an occasion for just an avalanche of misinformation about women and violence. Sarah Cliff at Vox rushed into print, eight facts about violence against women everyone should know. Well, let's consider some of those facts. Number one, most women experience physical abuse in their lifetime. The most recent national survey of American women found that a slight majority, 51.9%, reported experienced physical violence at some point in their lives. Well, this sounds like American women are living in a state of siege. Vox does give the source, but my guess is that the author assumed no one checked it out. I'm not sure she looked at it herself, because here is what it says. And stay with me, this is a mouthful. 51.9% 
of surveyed women and 66.4% of surveyed men said that they were physically assaulted as a child by an adult caretaker and or as an adult by any type of attacker. An estimated 1.9 million women and 3.2 million men are physically assaulted annually in the United States. Now, Vox failed to inform readers that the study uh, counted as physical assault, grabbing, pushing, and shoving. Also, according to Vox, one in ten women sustained a head or spinal injury as a result of physical assault. But if you read the study, you find that what it actually shows is that among all adult victims of physical assault who sustained an injury, both male and female, one in ten sustained head and spinal cord injuries. But Fox made it sound like every woman has a 10% chance of sustaining a head or spinal injury from a physical assault. Now, the truth is bad enough. Why hype it up with a misleading headline? Now, I've been studying research on violence against women for years, and I am sorry to report that much of it is untrustworthy. Now, critics sometimes accuse me of trivializing the problem of violence against women by questioning the research. In fact, I question the research because the problem of violence against women, against children, against men in the United States is just too serious to be left to advocates and careless journalists. Truth is on the side of compassion. Falsehood is no friend. I want to thank the viewers of this series for your many insightful remarks and conversations in the comment section. And please keep up the good work. And if you have suggestions for further episodes, let me know. And if you found this video useful, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter. Thank you for watching The Factual Feminist. Are women superior to men? A never-ending succession of books and news stories suggests they are. How many times have you heard that women are wiser, kinder, more efficient, just all-round better human beings? Well, let's look at the evidence. That's coming up next on The Factual Feminist. Now, it used to be fashionable to celebrate men's alleged superiority over women. And many of the great philosophers, Aristotle, Kant, Rousseau, Nietzsche, they deemed women intellectually inferior to men. But today, there's a new kind of reverse female chauvinism that prevails. It is so common that social scientists have given it a name. The Women Are Wonderful Phenomenon, or WA for short. Well, here's a sample of recent WA headlines. Well, let's consider some claims of female superiority. Take multitasking. I mean, how many times have you heard that women are much better at multitasking than men? The British writer Sir Ken Robinson, in one of the most watched TED Talks of all time, referred to a raft of research that showed women's superiority in multitasking. But where is this research? What we actually have is a handful of small, inconclusive, inconsistent studies. Now, some show women are better, but others show that it's men who excel. Thomas Busser, a researcher at the University of Amsterdam, took a careful look at the data and concluded that as far as gender differences are concerned, we just don't find either men or women excelling. It's a mix. It turns out that neither sex is particularly good at focusing on more than one thing at once. Well, what about niceness? It's often said that women are kinder than men, and the film critic Roger Ebert praised women to the skies for their kindness and generosity and hoped that they would take over the world. We'd all be better off. <laughs> well, is he right? Well, when it comes to generosity, kindness, altruism, once again, you find a lot of conflicting studies. But one of the most thorough and careful surveys was carried out by Tom Smith and his team at the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. Smith and his team asked questions that included both male and female styles of altruism, because women tend to 
adopt nurturing and caring roles towards people more than men, while men excel at good deeds and acts of kindness involving strangers. So in Smith's survey, women proved to be more empathetic than men. They were more likely to feel pity for others and to describe themselves as soft-hearted. But when it came to the empirically critical measure of generosity, how much do you actually do for others? The results were different. When Smith and his colleagues tallied up the results, they found that the score was even. Gender, Smith concluded, is not notably related to altruistic behaviors. Advantage, neither sex. Both sexes have their graces and their own styles of being virtuous. Neither has a monopoly on good or evil. How did we lose sight of this obvious truth? Because we live in the age of wah. <laughs> the rules of women are wonderful. This is a game, and it's impossible for men to win, because if women do something better than men, that's just evidence of their innate superiority. <laughs> but if men outperform women, that's proof of discrimination, retrograde patriarchy, or toxic masculinity. And to violate the spirit of WA is to invite havoc. I mean, suggest, as the former president of Harvard, Larry Summers, once did, that men have some innate advantages in, in math or spatial reasoning, well, prepare to change your job. But write a book that's entitled, are men necessary? The end of men, men down. Women are from Venus, men are from hell. And the gods of the zeitgeist smile. The answer to male supremacy is not female supremacy. The answer is equality, mutual regard and respect. Let's try that. Are you and anyone you know under the spell of wah? Let me know in the comments section. Please follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And thank you for watching The Factual Feminist. The doctrine, the doctrines that I'm opposed to are predicated on, well, one assumption they're predicated on, it's probably the primary assumption, is that the best way to view history is as the domination of a tyrannical male patriarchy, and that's true also particularly of the West, which is a doctrine I find absolutely unpalatable and historically absurd, biologically ridiculous and ungrateful, among other things. Who's, un who's ungrateful, sorry, in that? Who is being ungrateful? Look at what you have. In us, yeah. I mean, you, I'm incredibly you. grateful what I have, but to me, the then project of politics is... the construction is... of a tyrannical patriarchy? You're grateful for the productions of a tyrannical patriarchy. How does that make sense? Because I think life is good. I think it could be better. That, that's that's not fine. That's a completely reasonable proposition. But, I guess but you... that isn't commensurate with your claim that you're the beneficiary of a tyrannical patriarchy. Why not? How can it be good if it's the consequence of a tyrannical patriarchy? Tyranny isn't good, is it? I mean, that's the definition of tyranny. Something that isn't good, and yet it's produced all these things that you're grateful for. Like... Doesn't that contradict and contradiction bother you? Where did, where did what was good come from? Um, I wanted no, to there are just a lot of people, I would say, who are coming to listen to what I say because they're sick and tired of having their desire to move forward in the world and to achieve something and to take their place as adult males, let's say, who are under the weight of accusations that their ambition and forthrightness is a manifestation of something that's fundamentally tyrannical. They're not happy with that. It's not doing anyone any good. And it's also not true. It's really a terrible thing to do to young men. And it's happening all the time. That's why they're bailing out of universities like mad. There won't be a man left in the social sciences in 10 years in the universities. And it's no bloody wonder. It's an unhospitable place. And it's unhospitable precisely because of this doctrine. Said that throughout history, the fundamental relationship between men and women was one of power, essentially slavery. It's like. Fine, believe it if you want. It's not going to do your relationships any good, I can tell you that. Well, in what sense is our society male-dominated? 
the fact that the vast majority of wealth is owned by men, the vast majority of capital and is owned by men. Women do more unpaid it's a very, labor. Very tiny proportion of men, and a huge proportion of people who are seriously disaffected are men. Most people in prison are men. Most people who are uh, on the street are men. Most victims of violent crime are men. Most people who commit suicide are men. Uh, most men, most people who die in wars are men. People who do worse in school are men. It's like, where's the dominance here precisely? What you're doing is you're taking a tiny substrata of hyper-successful men and using that to represent the entire structure of, the, of Western society. There's nothing about that that's vaguely appropriate. But I could say equally well that most rape victims are women. You know, terrible things happen to people of both sexes. And you could say that with, with, with perfect utility, but that doesn't provide any evidence for the existence of a male-dominated patriarchy. Well, there it are just means that terrible things happen to both genders, which they certainly do. brand of more radical feminism that, that insists that our culture is best characterized as an oppressive patriarchy. And I think that, first of all, that that's an appalling sociological doctrine. And I think it has very negative psychological effects. And they won't be limited to men. Because in, if it's true that there's something toxic, let's say, about masculinity per se, what that will ine inevitably mean is that as women adopt more masculine roles, traditionally, what is that toxicity somehow going to go away? But that's a so strong man because no one says there's anything toxic about masculinity per se. What do you mean no one says that? People the term exists. No. No, they How is that a straw man? Well, but where did the term a, come from? It's a phrase that's used about forms of masculinity that are harmful to men and women. It's not about masculinity per se. You must know that. I read the American Psychological this. Association guidelines for the treatment of boys and men, and I know perfectly well that this is no strong man, straw man. And it's not only devoted towards what you might describe as the more aggressive ends of masculine behavior. It's aimed at, at masculinity in a much broader, in a much broader range of, there's a much broader range of accusations that are underlying, that are under the surface than that. To the degree that men are justly or unjustly upset about the way the marriage laws are set up and I think they have reason to be concerned especially with regards to the custody of children and the probability of paying virtually endless alimony with unbelievably severe penalties for failure um, I think that it's incumbent on men to organize themselves politically and rectify that and so I don't think that the answer is avoiding marriage I think the answer is political organization and pressure on the right institutions to rectify this because um, it needs to be rectified. I think that there are problems with the way the marriage laws are set up. I think they're quite serious. I don't think, I do think that they um, persecute men often, but I don't think the answer to that is to tell young men to avoid permanent relationships with young women at all costs because that is a very anti-life doctrine and it's a cure that's worse than the disease. It's such like a, a tug of war with whose side are you going to choose? I realized like it was just tearing me apart. It was always, you're on my side or you're dead to me. The first time my dad saw me, I was in my grandma's arms in a courtroom. I really felt like she didn't want anything to do with me. It's hard when you have to stop and think that your child wants nothing to do with you because of what they've been taught. One parent gets to be a parent and the other gets to be, at best, a visitor, and at worst, completely erased. And a lot of it has to do with our judicial system. What I remember about being in court was having to lie to the judge. Sorry. It destroys lives, it bankrupts people every day, it tears children from their homes, and just so happens to be a $50 billion a year industry. If you don't pay your child support, you're going to go to jail.
Walter Scott decided to bolt from his car. Court documents show he owed more than $18,000 in child support payments. These fathers are not deadbeat, they're dead broke. Nothing I said mattered. None of the evidence I brought forward mattered. The judge wouldn't even look at it. He's nothing like I was told he was. If there's 22 million adults dealing with this, that's over 22 million children. And the mental health consequences are severe and long-lasting. It's heartbreaking to me to see how many of you are dealing with this. My dad was erased from my life. It's happening all over the world. This isn't a father's rights issue. It's not a mother's rights issue. It's a human right issue. My daughter here and I have been alienated from each other for the majority of her life. She called me and said, Dad, it's time to move home, and she came home. If the court worked in a way where there was 50-50 custody, I'd be happier. I wouldn't feel a void because I've never known a life where one parent wasn't missing. A new bill would make default custody 50-50. How come we don't have shared parenting in the law? It's called special interests. We need more clarity in law to support what is best for children, shared parenting, and this helps move in that direction. I want to show people that it can have a happy ending. In about 10 minutes, we're going to leave for the courthouse so I can legally readopt my daughter. fully understand the severity of the situation, how much it eats at you over time. You're just left feeling unwanted. You only are ever around one side, and no matter how hard the other side is trying to reach you or screaming, you know, you never see it, you never hear it, it's just the one side. You're left believing this deluded perception that you're abandoned, you're not good enough to be loved, and you know, this person didn't want you anymore, and it's just really hard to grasp when you're a kid. And both my father and I lost so much, and the courts let this happen willingly. They don't care about best interests, and I realize this now, they don't care about the best interests of a child. All they care about is gaining something out of it, and you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, who's the one really gaining? Or not. Whether you like her or not, whether he's a nice guy or not, whether he's a bum or not, he's a bum that you picked to make two children with. Mm -hmm. And if he shows up to see the children on a Wednesday and he's given you some indication that he wasn't going to be there on Wednesday and for no other reason than he said he wasn't going to come, you don't let your children see him, that's wrong. But that, that's wrong. It's not between the two of you. He could be the biggest bum in the world. He lived with his children. His children know who he is, that they have a right to see their father unless he is abusive to them, dangerous to them, which I assume that prior to 2007, you never made that allegation. Would that be a fair statement? That would be fair. Well that unless he had some psychotic breakdown, which I doubt, well, no, which I head. doubt, nothing changed with regard to his love for his children from 2007 to 2009, except that you 
were peeled with him. Now, that's unfair. Whether you like that or not, it's unfair. It's unfair for the children. Unfair to him, I don't care about. Unfair to you, I don't care about. But it's unfair for the children. And if you deny them the right to see their father, they will eventually hate you. I want you to understand that. I want you to be prepared for the fact that if you don't let your children visit meaningfully with their father, there will be a day down the road when they will hate you. Justifiably so. Do you get it? Do you get it? Justifiably so. Because you will have allowed your anger to get in the way of their relationship with their father. Good, bad, or middle of the road. That's who you picked to make them with. You don't visit your bad judgment onto your children. Do we understand each other? I understand you. I don't agree with you at all. I don't give a... Listen, since I'm not adjudicating that or not, I have to tell you this. In 40 years, I've seen tens of thousands of women just like you mm -hmm. who will invest all of their beautiful bloom time in hating the person that they made their children with. And I guarantee you this. You know what's going to happen? Eventually, you're going to drive him away. He's got a beautiful new fiance. And he and this beautiful new fiance will go on and make a beautiful new family. And one day he's going to say, I'm tired. I want to see my kids. I would love to see my kids. And I feel badly that I'm not seeing my kids. But she really is an SOB. And she created this problem. And when they get older, they'll see me. But I'm not going to waste my time anymore. Eventually, he's going to say that. Mr. Baxter you, said that. Just a second. If he said it, it's because you made it difficult. I've seen you for a very short period of time. And I know that if he said it up until now, he said it because you've made it difficult. Mm -mm. It's not, not right that he's got a new girlfriend, that he's gone on to a new life, that I you don't have a new life, that you don't have a new life. All of those things are very unfair, either. that you're that's living with true. your sister, that you no longer have a home for your children. I read your answer. We have a beautiful home. We have a beautiful new home, and we are very happy. Well, and we have you want me to read your future. answer? You want me to read your answer? Sure. Yeah. Fine. I'm going to read what you said. Then mm -hmm. if what you said is a lie, you said... Because of Chris, I don't have a place to raise my children. My sister has taken us in on a temporary basis. That's what you swore to in your answer. Yeah, but it's a beautiful home. Miss <laughs> Rizzo, I said all that's necessary to you. Put your hand down. You have to know that you, this has nothing to do with you. You're extra, you're fodder. This has nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with his children. You have nothing to do with his formal life. This has nothing to do with you. Do you understand? Yes, Your Honor. Perfect. I wouldn't give up so easily on visiting with my children. I have no plan on I wouldn't give up so easily. But I'm telling you, I did my best. You don't get any property. All my lost wages and everything. Oh, Mr. Bacchus. Listen to me. You made some choices. They were not the smartest choices. Don't muddy the waters over a treadmill. It's not that. It's not 
worth an old treadmill. Start a new life. What you are having now is an opportunity to move forward. Miss Rizzo has a similar opportunity, but she's moving forward with two small children. Do we understand I'd be each more other? I'm glad they take the two children. I know. And you're going to take care of them in between laying bricks? No, oh, he's taking me to court for custody. Uh, I would have a daycare. My you family would watch them. Well, maybe, Mr. Rizzo. That's up to somebody else. If somebody, in my judgment, decides that a custodial parent work. is interfering with your right to visit with your children, a smart judge is going to take the children away from that parent and say, you can have visitation and you can have custody. I'm not involved with that. I'm telling you, don't muddy up the waters on stuff that you haven't had in your possession for two years and don't need. Because of Goodbye. I say the saddest moments in my life are spent in family court um, after I have not succeeded in persuading the father and the mother. Usually I talk to the father and I can't get a hold of uh, the mother and I can't get the father to persuade the mother to not go to court but go not to mediation but rather to couples communication counseling where they don't just learn to mediate the differences but they learn to hear each other non-defensively and be able to understand and piece together their partner's story so that they see their partner from their partner's perspective and their best intent. And that's the, the bad news is that I've only twice succeeded in being able to do that. And, um, and those two instances have worked out very well. Now the good news is I spent uh, a good part of last uh, uh, week, the week before last, at the White House, and the White House is very interested in, um, and in agreement um, with the fact that uh, that the boy crisis is a result, oftentimes, of divorce, which is often a result, of, uh, which leads to the children not having the father and the mother um, be able to participate equally in the child's life, and that normally, when the that that almost all of our mass shootings um, are um, from not only boys but dad-deprived boys, that almost all of our ISIS recruits are from males and dad-deprived males and also females and, uh, and children that are deprived of their puppy dogs. <laughs> um, and so this, uh, so this has been, um, so we are, um, I was able to, I think, move in a, in a direction to persuade the HHS the Health and Human Services to change child support, uh, child support um, from uh, fathers uh, focusing on father's dime to focusing on father's time, uh, so that the time with the father would be the most important way of enforcing what a child needs, not the money to the father. We saw in Walter's, I don't know if you picked up the statistics about Walter Scott's situation and the percentage of children, uh, the percentage of fathers who were in jail in South Carolina uh, for lack of child support, for child support payments uh, not being full, seeing what happens to those child support payments. They often don't even know the mother, but the, the whole issue of fighting over money um, is really needs to be revamped and do much more like what we do in Sweden, what they do in Sweden, which is uh, focus on the assumption that the child needs both parents. If you have kids and you try to get divorced, the probability that that's going to demolish your life is very, very high. First of all, it's incredibly expensive. So one or both of you is going to come out of that poor. And 
your market value has declined. Let's say you're the woman who takes the kids. Your market value has declined radically. You're going to be poorer. The man, he's just as screwed because he is now an indentured servant and there's no escape from it. So it's, and it's not so bad if you can negotiate a peaceful separation and some people can, but lots of times if you have a terrible relationship, it's not like negotiating a peaceful separation is all that easy. But if you're at each other's throats, good luck to you. I think it's roughly equivalent to having non-fatal cancer. It is not pleasant. It's a 10-year process, 15-year process. It'll cost you $250,000, and it'll tear a big chunk out of your life. And also, it will really disrupt your relationship with your kids. And, you know, you, you bring kids into a step-parent family, they do not do as well. We have this accepted double standard where it's perfectly okay to abuse men and say horrific things about men. But when the shoe's on the other foot and we're saying those same things about women, then it's not okay. I'm getting really sick of the argument that feminism is about equality because feminism is not about equality. Even the actual definition of feminism says that feminism is about elevating the rights of women's to that of men's. Well, hey guys, it is 2018 and all your rights are elevated to the same level as men's. So let me just recap this because this is the truth. Feminism does not care about men. Feminism does not exist to help men. And therefore, it is very unsurprising to me when things are said about men and women are totally silent. But it also shows how you are total hypocrites. As soon as men's groups come forward and try to protect men against the horrible things that are being said against them, women scream and call them sexist. And you know what? It is ridiculous and it has to stop. So my question is, at what point do we really stop ourselves and say that we need to call a spade a spade and accept that this behavior is not acceptable on either side? If a woman earns $40,000 a year more than her male partner, their risk of divorce rises significantly. Um, that's not all the man being insecure, some of that is the woman being dissatisfied. We may be dealing with a vagary of human nature here that can only be changed so much, or with, within a certain segment of the population that are able to, you know, to make those choices and be happy with them. I, I just, I think that if, if we're going to be practical um, and, and look at things in an objective way and accept the fact that some things can only bend so far, uh, as far as human nature and the things that we want for, our, for ourselves as men and women, uh, there's going to be a lot of very unhappy college-educated women uh, in their 40s who are unable to find partners that they find suitable. Mm. And that's a real shame because we brought it on ourselves, right? When we, when we artificially prioritized women's education and ignored men's problems. So There were women who were abusive to men at that time, and the treatment that the community gave those men was either the Skimmington Ride, uh, which was the practice of the community coming around the house at night and beating pots and pans and screaming and throwing things at the house to shame him for allowing himself to be beaten by his wife, or they put him on a donkey backwards, holding its tail, and rode him around the town square and threw, or strapped him to a cart, and threw rotten fruit and vegetables at him to shame him for allowing his wife to beat him. Okay, and these things have been just quietly erased from modern scholarship and modern uh, accounts of history, right? Back when we thought it was okay to beat your wife, right? When we thought it was okay to beat your wife, at least when it was extremely egregious, particularly egregious, we'd strap the guy to a whipping post and give him 30 lashes. When your wife was beating you, right? It was you that got punished by the community, right? So I don't know that feminism has a, a balanced perspective on any of these things. I can't even convey to you the number of times I've managed to convince a man that yes, males are the majority 
of victims of violence in every single society on the planet. Males, uh, no matter the gender of the perpetrator, women or men, violence is more likely to be perpetrated on a male than a female. And that pattern begins before age one. Basically, it begins when babies start to crawl. That's the point when their parents start hitting boys two to three times more often than they hit girls. And that man will stick to his guns and insist that violence is a bigger problem for women, and that society doesn't take it seriously enough, that the VAWA and the thousands of bids and shelters and the mandatory arrest policies and all of that doesn't go far enough to deal with the problem of violence against women. And they will often say this moments after they have conceded that violence is a larger, more ubiquitous problem for men, and even when they have accepted that women are as likely to be violent with men as men are to be violent with women. Meanwhile, a 2008 study out of Indiana University reported, contrary to stereotypes about sexual performance and masculinity, men, had, men interviewed in a large international study reported that being seen as honorable, self-reliant, and respected was more important to their ideals of masculinity than the being seen as attractive, uh, sexually active, or successful with women, regardless of age or nationality. And this asked men in Brazil, in Italy, all over the place. The men more frequently ranked good health, harmonious family life, and good relations with their wife or partner as more important to their quality of life than material, self-fulfilling, or purely sexual concerns. So, I seem to be seeing a pattern here. I seem to be seeing a pattern that feminists define toxic masculinity based on their attitudes toward men. Not how men are, not how men behave, not the expectations that men have of each other, or that society has of men but how feminists think of men. Meanwhile, there are hundreds of thousands of fathers across the West who are financially supporting their children while simultaneously being denied reasonable access to them by their mothers with the tacit support of lackadaisical, apathetic family courts. And what does the largest feminist organization in the US, the National Organization for Women, have to say about fathers' rights groups? They're an abuser's lobby, campaigning for more effective paternal custody and access rights, not out of love for their children or a sense of responsibility to provide them with nurturance and support, but out of a desire to abuse and harass their estranged spouses and partners or to get out of paying child support. So just for Texas and yearly incentives, bonus, and costs, uh, the total amount that they received was $763,838,384, just for Texas. If you've been paying attention, you now understand why your court case went the way it did. Child support is nothing more than a welfare recovery program. States like Texas recover $763 million yearly off of child support. They also employ 2,600 people. And divorce is a $60 billion a year business. Although there are hundreds of peer-reviewed articles that show equal shared parenting is best for children and that not having equal shared parenting is detrimental to children, Judges, lawyers, and some legislators absolutely refuse to pass 50-50 legislation, granting primary custody to the mother. Why? Here's an excerpt from Tarrant County, Texas, Title 40 document. Incorporate existing enforcement resources into the system to obtain maximum benefit from federal funding. Hmm. It's a $60 billion industry. The following is a clip from my new comedy special, Secret Optimist. The first time I was ever pulled over by a cop, I got a ticket for unsafe lane change. Now I didn't know that was a thing. If you're unfamiliar, here's what it means. It means you're driving the speed limit, 
then you put your turn signal on, then you carefully change lanes, and there's a cop in that lane trying to speed by you, he gives you a ticket. That's what it means. <laughs> well, I prevented an officer of the law from breaking the law, and that is against the law. So, it was how he gave me the ticket, though, that stayed with me, because the first thing he said, he didn't say, you know, fast you were going, you were driving recklessly. He didn't even say, and how was your night going? He didn't say any of that. He just looks at me and he goes, well, thanks for making my stuff fly everywhere. Thanks for making my stuff? I'm sorry, officer unorganized, but what stuff did you have to fly every, were you playing Jenga in your passenger seat? What happened before I got here? How do you drive? Did all the books come off your bookshelf? How do you drive? Maybe he keeps a handgun on the dashboard. He just keeps his handgun on the dash, he slams the brakes, handgun flies to the windshield, accidentally shoots a black man. He's like, no one will believe this. Like, is that how it went down? I know, I was offended too. And I gave him my license. I figured it was all I could do. Cause there wasn't a moment in my head where I was like, this is gonna work out great in the end. So I gave him my license. I figured he would look me up. He would find out, if, well, he would try to look me up. His computer could be anywhere, but he would do his best to find it. Sift through the rubble. Rebuild. Then he would look me up. He'd find out I have a good record. He'd come back with a warning. That'd be the end of it. But that wasn't the end of it. Because he came back with a ticket in under two minutes. Under two minutes. You ever been pulled by a cop? Takes them longer than 15 minutes just to walk to the car, doesn't it? Because they're messing with your head. They're trying to ice the kicker. That's what they're doing. They're trying to make sure you're so frazzled by the time they finally get to the car, you're like, ah, cocaine's in the glove box. Like, that's what they want. So I was mad. I was like, why are you giving me this ticket? He said, well, if I would have hit you, it would have been your fault. I said, no, you hit me. That sounds a lot like your fault. He said, yeah, but you took the lane, so it's your fault. I said, okay, pretend time. Uh, if we're gonna do this, at least let's do this correctly. Whether or not I took the lane is immaterial, because we're in California right now, which is a one-party state. What that means is that the person at the back of any accident is responsible for the entire accident. He said, I don't think that's how it works. I said, well, uh, I am not a police officer. But aren't you a police officer? So, hey, do you think we should ask you? So I just kept asking him questions. That's what I did. I asked him question after question after question after question. Because he was mad that I slowed him down. I asked him 27 minutes worth of questions. That's right, yeah. I detained a police officer. That's what I did.